Well, if you would take out your Bibles and turn to the book of James, James chapter 1. We'll be in chapter 1, verse 12 through 18 this morning. Last sermon, if you remember, I preached on verse 1 through 11. And because I'm spaced out, um, I preached about a month ago. And so today, the text that we're in is following, of course, it's following the text that we were dealt with before at the last time. But I pray this text wrecks your heart as it has mine. <laughs> we all love shortcuts, don't we? Who doesn't want to uh, drive through a parking lot to bypass a light? <laughs> Too bad it's illegal. We all love getting to see that there is a faster way to get where we're going or to get what we want. I think there is, a, there is hardly anything more relieving to me than to get on the interstate and see that the speed limit is 75. We like taking the faster route in our cars. And friends, we like taking the faster route in our lives. We want to leave college and move immediately into the field for which we've studied. We want to get married and so we expedite the process by trying to seek out people who want to get married as well. We want that job promotion that the boss told us that we would be getting, but it hasn't come yet. We want our spouses to be better at picking up messes after, that's me, after making a mess. We want our children to start eating food that is not peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or mac and cheese. We all want what we want, and we all want it now. But whether it is our families, our jobs, our friends, or our walk with Jesus, we know that our plans to expedite the process rarely work the way that we mean them to. Are you willing to accept what is and stop looking for what you want it to be? The reason we all like shortcuts is because waiting is so hard to do. But remaining in a situation for an extended period of time is actually one of the most reforming and refining things we do. Did you know that leaving something and not having to wait anymore is actually the easy way out. But do we do it patiently? Because our tendency is to endure. If we do endure, we, we might endure, but we may not do it patiently. What is God's purpose in waiting? What is God's purpose with perseverance? What does God plan to do in your heart through enduring trials? And what does this reveal about our hearts when we go through them? James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. Read along with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now we're on the heels of verses 1 through 11, and talking about how testing produces steadfastness. And James urges his readers to count these trials, the trials that we enter into, that we fall into, he says, count them all joy. But we know that the reason for counting these trials joy is that the Lord uses them to produce spiritual wholeness, spiritual completeness in his people. God desires his people to be spiritually mature and ready for every good work. This is why verse 4 ends the way it does, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So this is the trajectory of God when he uses trials. So, when we, so we know that this is God's desire for his people, but the real question is this, how? How do we do this? We see in verse 5 through 8, it teaches us that when you are in the midst of your trials... The one thing that we must do is depend on God by asking for wisdom from above. This truth is evidently taught in the whole scripture. That God knows what he is doing in your life. And friends, honestly, we don't. And even though you cannot see a single moment into your future, God intimately and intricately knows every moment of your life. Because of this, James urges his readers, the readers of this letter, to pray, to beg God for wisdom. True wisdom from above. But with this, there is a warning with it. That those who ask for wisdom, if they do not ask in faith, believing that God can give what he says he possesses, then you should not expect to receive anything from him at all. It calls this person a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And in the final section, in in verse 9 through 11, we ask the question, what will remain in the end? God is giving us a divine peek into what what really will remain. He is saying that those who boast in their riches will pass away like the flower of the grass. And friends, this is a gracious perspective check for our lives. It is a cut at the knee. What's going to last? And the following three verses, 9 through 11, is how we are to view ourselves from God's perspective. How does God view us? How does God view our lives? How does God view our the trajectory of our, of our hearts. Leaving off from that section about 
how we ultimately will not remain because we will pass away and our lives are short. We now transition to verse 12. And I want us to think about verse 12 this morning as a hinge. It's a hinge verse. And it's often been debated that verse 12 it either goes with verse 1 through 11 or it goes with verses 13 through 18. It's debated. People don't really know. Because it connects to both. But I've read commentaries who think one, and then I've read commentaries who think the other. So after a trial has come into our life, and after you have endured it, or you are in the midst of enduring it, what happens now? So verse 12 reads this way. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to all those who love him. Verses 12 through 15 are addressing two different locations of trials in our lives. Verse 12 talks about God's outward testing of our lives. How God brings trials into our lives for the goal of refining us, reforming us, teaching us, solidifying our faith. And verses 13 through 15 is about our inward temptations. So we have two locations, verse 12 through 15. 12, outward testing, 13 through 15, inward temptations. So these are two different ways that we can think about this passage as a whole. Now the first one that I that the first thing I want us to see is in verse 12 and that is this, that the love of God leads to life. The love of God leads to life and that's in verse 12. Now before we just dig this text apart, this verse 12, I want to separate it into three sections. And the first section I want us to look at is this. The man who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. The man who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. The word for blessed can also mean happy. But the truth is, not everyone, or even every Christian for that matter, is happy during trials. It's just not the case. So I think it's better to just say he's blessed. I want to use the word, I want to use these two words, Patience and constancy. It is that those who remain steadfast under trial do it with patience and with a constancy in their waiting. Because this text is reinforcing the idea that those who receive the crown of life will not receive it because they have a rock in their shoe. We talked about it in the last sermon on James that we must distinguish what is a trial and what is not a trial. A trial can be anything from suffering and affliction to temptation that continues to raise its head in our lives. And I said last time humorously that the trial, it it is not a trial to be driving down Rogers Avenue. It is just impatience. And so distinguishing what is a trial is important. So a trial is when there is something in your life that forces you to remain steadfast. Not a temporary or a quick fix, but something you know you will have to endure. That's what this text is addressing. 
It is addressing the type of trials that will bear upon your back, make your knees bend, and hurt your joints. Notice the word in verse 12, or the words, the statements. Remains, the man who remains steadfast, the one who remains under trial or has stood the test. It means that when trials come into our lives, we must bear them with patience. Knowing that those who accept their trials with patience and have shown themselves to be approved will receive the crown of life. Now think for a moment, friends. A wicked man, a man who does not love God, a man who is not God's, who does not desire God, still suffers. They still experience affliction. But what is the difference between a believer, hopefully, and between them and a wicked man? Endurance. They can't endure. They might escape, but they can't endure. A Christian is not simply called to suffer for righteousness' sake, but to suffer with endurance. To persevere in the face of suffering. See, the man or woman who does not have the Spirit of God residing in them will suffer, and they will do it unwillingly, with fainting, with murmuring, with grumbling. But God desires that you endure sufferings because He wants you to be spiritually whole. He wants there to be a completeness to your life, a wholeness to your life, a perfection to your life. Think also, friends, about the discipline of the Lord and what it means for your life. Hebrews 12, 7 through 8 teaches that the discipline of the Lord legitimizes our sonship. Hear what's written. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. So it reinforces the idea that when discipline, when the Lord chastises his children, when the Lord brings instruction into the the lives of his children, it is proving your sonship. It is proving your daughtership in Christ. When the Lord disciplines His people, it is proof that you are His child. God does not bring anything meaningless into your life. So why is the man who remains steadfast under trial blessed? Now we are to endure these trials, but why is he blessed? It's not because they are extremely happy during trials, is because they fix their eyes on what God has promised. They have fixed their eyes on what God has promised and letting that determine how they feel about their trials. They let God's rock-solid promise determine how they think. Friends, if you're wondering to yourself this morning, how is it that a person can be blessed that enter or endure trials? How is it that you can be blessed as well as enduring trials? Get your eyes off the problem and onto Christ. Simply put, 
Now that is harder said, or it's easier said than done. If you're wondering how, to, how you can salvage your marriage, or if you're wondering how your child will ever stop rebelling against your hopefully loving authority over them, even though you want the best for them, get your eyes off the problem and onto Christ. Get your hands off the wheel as if you have control over your life or you think you have control over your life and submit to God's loving leadership over your life because God knows what's best for you. He knows what is good for you. There's no wonder why we experience so much turmoil. We should trust him and persevere. Let God guide your life through trials and stop seeking to navigate it on your own. The key is this. Endure. But endure for what purpose? The scripture goes on to say, those who remain steadfast will receive the crown of life. Those who remain steadfast will receive the crown of life. The literal translation of the crown of life means that the person who endures trials will receive life as their crown. They will receive life as their crown. Beloved, we have to be careful here because there are those who make the crown of life their prime pursuit. It's like they stop at everything to make sure they receive that crown because it is, after all, the crown of life. But the emphasis in this statement is, on, is not on the crown itself, but the life that gives the crown meaning. Because it would be a meaningless and worthless crown if it did not have life with it. We don't endure trials that we might receive a crown, but that we might receive life as our crown. Friends, there is a carnal deception hidden that we must be aware of. We sometimes can't help but think that when the text is speaking of a crown, that we can hook on our belt loop so people can look at and see what we've achieved. Look, I've got the crowns. I have more crowns to throw at Jesus' feet when I get to heaven. Notice what the text says. It says, receive, not achieve. It's not about what we can get from him, but what we are given by him. Thomas Manton, the Puritan says it this way, Though none be crowned without striving, yet they are not crowned for striving. As in the scripture, it is said in many places, God will give every man according to his work, yet not for his work. For such passages do only imply that as evil works shall not remain unpunished, so neither shall good works be unrewarded. Friends, one of the main themes of this entire book is that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So both faith and works are necessary to prove your salvation. But only one is necessary for it. This is is absolutely crucial to understand. You don't do anything to save yourself. But if works do not follow conversion then there's drastically something wrong. In fact, James would say, there was no faith to begin with. Ultimately, the reward for enduring is the crown of life. 
And Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 5, 2 through 12. He says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is in the Beatitudes. He taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, there's a reason why this was the last beatitude. There's a reason. It's because the goal, it is the goal of life, to endure and receive the reward. After the apostles were arrested and beaten and let go, Scripture says in Acts 5 verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They were there. They had the reward in mind, so they were able to leave rejoicing because they knew that if they endured, great is the reward. Who better to be rewarded by than the Savior who first told you those words? But there's another reason why we are to endure trials. It's not simply that we seek something, but that we, we have our affections warmed to something. Notice the next statement in the, in the verse, verse 12, which God has promised to those who love him. Ultimately, what we see this text teaching is that our receiving of the crown is not finally dependent on our merits, but on a promise. This is God saying, I will give life because I say I will give life. Beloved, if you want to count your trials with all joy, if you want to see your steadfastness grow as a result of your faith being tested, if you want to have spiritual maturity and completeness, if you want wisdom, if you desire to keep from being double-minded, if you want to keep from boasting in what you have and not the one who gives it, if you want to remain steadfast in trial and receive the crown of life, the question is, and will only ever be this, do you love him? Do you love him? That's the only question that matters. Because if you love him, you will endure. And you will bear no matter how heavy the load for him. It is upon this statement alone that your life will sway one way or the other. It's the same question that Jesus asked Peter at the end of the gospel. Do you love me? Do you love me?
If you seek life, you seek the reward. But do not seek God. Then you will get neither God nor life. And life, even if it is eternal life, if you do not have God with it, that life is not worth having. If you went to the mall or you went out to the street somewhere and you asked someone if they wanted eternal life, probably 90% of people would say yes. Why? Because everyone wants eternal life. Everyone wants to live forever. Nobody wants to die. But it is different to say, do you want to repent of your sins and trust in Christ? People don't, want, people don't want to do that. People don't want God. They just want life. Friends, this is prevalent with, with what we know as, and this is something that a lot of men that we follow might, might have called war upon. It's called the sinner's prayer. We know all about that, don't we? The sinner's prayer is the appeal to go to heaven without the love of God it takes to get there. Then we have someone like a pastor or an authority of some kind say that we are actually saved. And because of this, our hearts actually end up being hardened to the gospel. Because we think, oh, that eternal life thing, I've got it. It's under control. While the whole time we were headed straight to hell. Friends, this is seeking the gift without the giver. Seeking what God gives without seeking God himself. And it will lead to utter ruin. Because God desires that you love him. Because without this, without that love, you will not receive the crown of life. He has not promised the crown of life to those who don't love him. And this is crucial for us to understand. Because we so flippantly seek cheap versions of what God gives. We desire life, but we don't want repentance with it. We want eternal life, but we don't care whether or not God is there with us. We just want to live forever. Friends, forever is pointless if it does not have God at the center of it. If you were to walk out the back door and toss your dog a bone, I'm sure there would be no hesitancy in him to think that you are the best owner he could ever have. But if five minutes later you walk out with a 12-ounce sirloin, what do you think that dog would do? Do you think that dog would continue holding on to that bone? Well, obviously not. That dog would probably eat that steak so quick that you couldn't even, it wouldn't even hit the ground. It would be gone. Beloved, the true prize is God, not life eternal. The prize is God himself not life eternal. It's not like we can set up a cabin on the south side of heaven and say, hey, I want to live here forever. No, you're going to be around his throne, worshiping him forever, and if you don't love him, you will not get there. But if you do get there, you will love him, and he will be enough. We so easily deceive ourselves into thinking that all we need is life. Friends, it's like gnawing on a bone when God offers a juicy steak. It's like being satisfied to stamp in a puddle when God offers the ocean. It's like eating candy bar at a feast. God desires that you have the real prize, himself. 
Friends, are you experiencing a particular struggle in your life that requires a lot of attention, a lot of your attention, a lot of your focus, whether in your marriage or in your family, whether it's your children, your job? Why do you wonder that you struggle so much if you are not first seeking the kingdom of God? So, friend, the question that we must ask ourselves is this. Do you love him? Do we love him? This passage doesn't teach that you can have life without loving God. It says plainly that God promises life to those who do love him. And that love, which is how you receive life, is also the fuel for your endurance in this life. You cannot expect to persevere without first loving God. You cannot seek to persevere without first loving God. Now that's verse 12. Now verse 13 through 15 reads this way. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire... When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, the first thing I want to point out is this. The lust of the flesh leads to death. We saw earlier that the love of God leads to life, but the lust of the flesh leads to death. And that's in verse 13 through 15. I want to be very clear here. James is not radically shifting gears. Okay, A lot of I've heard a lot of people say that James is just a bunch of random sayings, and I, I understand where they're coming from, and it's very difficult to see where he's going a lot of times, but there's an argument here. James is actually arguing some kind of specific truth. He's not shifting gears, and he's not being a good Baptist by saying, I have the, the two T's of trials, testing and tempting. But instead, he's showing us what accompanies every test that the Lord brings into the life of a believer. When the Lord brings a trial into the life of a believer, the Lord seeks to refine you and perfect you, but what comes along with it? Is there an opportunity to sin with it? Now, God, not being the author of that, but do we, from our own desires, tempt or deceive ourselves? James is making the claim that there is a tendency in every person to begin Casting blame at God for their current situation that they are in. If the imperative in verse 12 is remain steadfast under trial, the imperative in these verses is don't blame God for what you're responsible for. Don't blame God for what you are responsible for. We all struggle with this, friends. We all struggle with this to some extent. Financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. Testing, the Lord's testing, 
almost always includes with it, though God is not the creator of it, temptation and temptation can be itself a trial. Now whatever way you are tempted to cast blame upon God in your own life, friends, I would urge you, discover that way. Think about how you do that in your own hearts. Whether it is in your mind or whether it is with your mouth, think about how you blame God for the things that He does in your life. And call to mind the truth of God, that He desires you to be lacking in nothing. He desires you to be holy. He desires you to be perfect. He desires you to be complete. Remember that that is the goal. So continue to seek and look through his perspective at your trials. Continue to ask the Lord for wisdom that when you're experiencing trials, that you don't just flippantly deal with them and say, well, God's the, oh, he's, he's tempting me to sin. God's bringing this into my life and I'm bitter or I groan, I murmur in my heart against God. Friends, God is not the author of temptation. God does not tempt us to evil. He does test us, but because of our desires, we are tempted to think that God is doing something that he is not, or that he is manipulating a situation, or he is trying to hurt us. Friends, God doesn't desire to hurt you permanently, but if God brings a test into your life, it is that he might teach you, instruct you, and discipline you. Proverbs 19, verse 3 says this, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, whose fault's that? The man's folly. His heart rages against the Lord. Isn't it interesting that when our own folly brings us ruin, we tend to blame God for it. Isn't that interesting? And how deceived are we? In our deception, we don't give God the credit for the gifts he gives, but we do credit him with the temptation he doesn't give. We boast in the good gifts he gives, as if we've earned it ourselves, but when catastrophe comes into our lives, we easily give credit to God for those. James seeks to eliminate this thinking. He, he seeks to chop that tree down by giving us an argument, an argument from God's character. So you see how verse 12 and 13 relate. God tests, he brings trials, but our tendency is to begin to blame God for those things, for the temptations that we experience though God is not the originator of those. The reason for this is because every time, the reason that James uses God's character as his argument is that every time we don't give God glory for what he has given, but do blame him for the things he hasn't given, we are casting a shadow upon his integrity. We are casting a shadow upon his integrity. We are... Blaming God's perfect character for something that he cannot do. 
we are marring his holy name. And ultimately, it's blasphemy. We're blaspheming him. Now, James uses this argument from God's character by first saying that God himself cannot be tempted. God can't be tempted. And this is important because if God does not have within himself the desire or the inclination, the leaning or anything for temptation and sin, then there should be no shadow cast upon his character, claiming that he has tempted us, claiming that he has been the one to tempt us to sin. God doesn't want it himself, and he doesn't want it for you either. He wants what's good for you. And this is why the text says, let no one say. In the Greek, it's literally an imperative. Do not say this. Let no one say when he's tempted. I'm being tempted by God. Don't say this, because God is not responsible for temptation. Because temptation is the enticement to evil. And God hates evil. He hates sin. He hates the trail that leads to sin. He hates the desire for sin. He hates the enticing, the luring of sin. And the temptation desires in our own hearts. See, the best argument God has is based on his character. He doesn't tempt anyone. Because he's perfect. And that is why James argues from God's character. He says God doesn't tempt anyone. God's character is flawless and there is no pollution within his constitution. What makes up God is not polluted. He is perfect, holy, flawless, and pure. It is based upon God's perfect character that James says then, and God doesn't tempt anyone. So God can't be tempted. He has the inability to be tempted. And he doesn't tempt anyone. So if temptation does not originate in the creator, then where does it come from? Friends, it comes from our own original pollution. It comes from our depravity. It comes from our desires for sin. The pollution I want to first show is, is our deception, how we deceive ourselves. Read verse 14. Verse 14 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Lured and enticed. And ultimately, he's lured and enticed by his own desires, but he has to be first lured and enticed. The hook has to be thrown. Think with me in the garden. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, the serpent came to Eve and tempted her. This temptation did not originate in Eve. Notice the difference. It didn't originate in Eve. It came from the outside to Eve. The serpent tempted Eve. And this, this, tempt, this, this luring, this enticing came from the outside through that ancient serpent. And we know, according to Scripture, in Genesis 1.31, that when God had finished creating man and woman, he said it was very good. Very good. When God says something is good, it's not kind of good. It's good. It's very good. In fact, 
He says very good when he finishes man and woman. He said good for all the other things. So God created them with an original righteousness. He made them pure. He made them perfect. He made them good. So there was nothing in Adam or Eve that desired evil because there was no pollution. There was nothing wrong with them at the beginning. They were pure. They were good. There was nothing that would lead to, would eventually lead to death. And I know this because if, if there was an original pollution in, in, in them already, then God would have not said very good. So since God did say very good, they are very good. They were good. And we can just assume that. There was no sinful pollution in their hearts. So the serpent was the original deceiver and thus tempted Eve to sin. And as a result of the original fall, we all, in Adam as our representative, fell as well. He is our legal representative and we fell in Adam. And now all of us are not righteous. We are not good. We are not perfect anymore. We are not pure because we fell from our original righteousness and we, represented by Adam, are now fallen. Now there is a difference in the location of our deception now. Deception can come from the outside and friends, Satan is, he's after you. Seeking like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to destroy God's church. And like the serpent, tempted Eve in the garden. But deception can now come from within. So in the garden it came from the outside, now it can come from the inside. Deception can come from the outside in, and like the serpent... That temptation came from the outside in. That deception came from the outside in. Did you know that we have within ourselves the ability to deceive ourselves? Did you know that? We can deceive ourselves. We can think one thing without being told by anyone any other thing, and we can deceive ourselves. In fact, I believe that the majority of deception we face in this life is deception we put ourselves through. It's not other people deceiving us. It is me deceiving me. It is me thinking thoughts that are not God-like. Me thinking thoughts that are not righteous. And thus I'm deceived. We are deceived to believe that God is holding out on us. That there must be a smoother path to what God promises. It is that we can have what God offers without the price it takes to receive it. We want to shortcut God's plans in our lives. And friends, this can, this can place us in a desperate spot of hopelessness. Because if there is deception from the outside and deception coming from the inside, what hope is there? We're just deceived from every single thing we look at and every single thing we think because we're polluted. Deception coming from every side and from within. We have within ourselves the ability to be lured and enticed 
But if there's no desire for the thing being used to lure us, then ultimately we won't fall into temptation. We can be lured, we can be enticed, but if there's no desire that latches onto the temptation, we can't be tempted. But friends, the fall affected that as well. The fall didn't just affect our deception. The fall affected our desires. Verse 14 says, You are lured and enticed by your own desires. Some of us might think that like darkness is only the absence of light. We also lack goodness. We also lack goodness. And this is what makes us bad. Well, friends, I want to say that is partly true. That's partly true. Because of the fall, we do lack goodness. But we are not bad because of our lack of goodness. Beloved, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they lost the original righteousness they had from God, being made in the image of God, and became polluted. Also in Adam, we did not just lose our original righteousness, but we gained something as well. We gained the positive presence of evil in our hearts. So it's not that we just lost something. We also gained something. We lost the goodness. We lost the righteousness. But we also gained evil in our hearts. We're polluted. So we don't simply have a negative absence of goodness in our hearts, but also the positive presence of evil in us. And we have a steady presence of guilt because we have the steady presence of evil residing in our hearts. To put it like Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it this way. It isn't simply that we are not what we ought to be, but we are positively what we ought not to be. We are positively what we ought not to be. Pretty confusing way of saying this. We are deceived because our hearts desire evil. And because of that, when we are lured and enticed in any shape or form, our desires latch on and we are tempted. We want it. It's not that temptation comes or luring and enticing comes and we're able to fight it off. No, we want it. We want it. We latch on like a hungry dog after the steak. We want it. Now, you might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, well, I thought I was bad, but I did not think I was that bad. Well, what does Scripture say? Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Does that passage say that their actions were evil? No. It says their thoughts, their intentions were evil. Psalm 51.5 teaches this as well. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8.7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Blake just preached Titus. Titus 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is not debatable, friends. We want sin. We want it. We crave after it. It's like blood in the water. This is, our, this is probably the most foundational aspect of man, our desire for evil. And this, it's ugly. This ugly, depraved desire is always looking for more. It is never satisfied with little. It's like a sponge constantly soaking in the moisture of evil that surrounds it. It wants evil. And when we begin to mortify the flesh, when we begin to kill the flesh, and seek to dry out its base desire, it thirsts all the more. And the most horrifying problem of all this is this. We seek the majority of our counsel from our desires. I seek counsel from me most often than anyone else. And yet I have the capacity within myself to deceive myself every time. We listen to ourselves more than anyone else. And yet we can deceive ourselves in an instant. Beloved, if you think you are above sin, 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Your susceptibility, our susceptibility to sin is undebatable. We love sin. It's not that we like it. We love it. We crave after sin. Dear saints, in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. There is no more, we are adults and we can do what I want kind of talk. We will fall. And your fall will be great. The fourth or the third aspect of this passage is this, that we deceive ourselves, our deception latches onto our desires, and the third is that we disobey God. It leads to sin. It is important to see that desire in and of itself is not sinful. Now, the inclination, the sinful thoughts of man are sinful, but desire alone, in and of itself, is not sinful. That's why the scripture says that desire, when it is lured and enticed, gives birth to sin. If you're here, and you struggle with the idea that every kind of temptation is every form of evil, I want to first comfort you. Friends, be comforted that temptation is not evil. It's not sin. Okay, Now, temptation can be evil, or the temptation can be coming from something evil. But I want you to know that when you're tempted, temptation is not parallel to sin. We're going to be tempted. We're going to experience temptation in this life. 
And we're going to experience an abundance of it. I say that, as I say that, we need to realize that, as I said, temptations are a part of the Christian experience and we will have them continually. And the goal is not that we, it's not in the, the frequency of the temptation, friends. That's not dealing with the heart desire. It's not that we try to remove ourselves, and of course we need to remove ourselves from temptation, but it's not that the frequency of the temptation is going to go down. It's that the frequency of succumbing, succumbing to the temptation should come down. So I just wanted to clarify that. But also I want to point out that desire by itself, though it is not sin, is piped into your life from a polluted heart. So the origin of it is also evil. We disobey God's commands, not because we accidentally slip into sin, but because we want it. And in the moment we are lured and enticed by our own desires, we don't care what God thinks. We just want sin. The fourth thing is where all this leads, and that is death. Verse 15 reads this way. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, this passage teaches us that after we are deceived, desire for sin, we crave it. After we crave sin, we disobey God's word. And after we disobey God's word, the due penalty for our sin is death. It's the payment. Friends, this is the ultimate problem. Death. We are born into this. We are born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. I will never have to teach my sons to disobey me, friends, because they have it within them. They have within them the desire for it. This is the great curse. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't just commit a, a small sin, they unleashed death. On the world. And it wasn't that death just became a problem we have to deal with now. Romans 5.17 says death reigned. Death reigned in Adam. Sin entered the world and death through sin. Do you want to know why there is such catastrophe in the world? Do you want to know why the hospitals will never be empty? Sin and death. See, beloved, sin is no small thing. It is cosmic in its repercussions. Everything now is fallen because of sin. And sin brings death. Sin has affected and polluted the world. Now, James ends this portion on a grim note. I mean, he literally ends on the word death. He ends it on a grim note. But we need to see what he is doing. He's making an argument. He doesn't resolve the argument now because he's not trying to. The reason James took us down this trail is because he is establishing a key element of God's character. Remember, he's arguing from God's character. 
and contrasting that to our depravity. So the question is, death. It's here, it's prevalent. Whose fault is it? It's ours. So then we can turn it and say, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because the argument is that we're responsible for that. I'm responsible for the death that I'm in. So the third thing that this passage teaches us is in verse 16 through 18. Read along with me in verse 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, as death comes from within us, so goodness comes from within God. So from death comes from our hearts, so goodness flows from the heart of God. Now James starts this section by telling us not to not do the very thing we want to do. Verse 16, it's a short verse. Don't, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. He seeks to help us see that we don't need to blame God for what we're responsible for. So what James does here is he tells us what God is responsible for. He says, you're responsible for this. Now what's God responsible for? Verse 17. Read it again. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Notice the common theme. He takes us back to God's character. So James first establishes where good gifts come from and then links it to the one who is good. He plugs it into God who is the source of goodness. And he focuses on one aspect of God's perfect, good nature. He focuses on God's immutability, his changeless nature. Now we have to ask, why would, would he connect God giving his good gifts to his changeless nature? Now I want to illustrate that in two ways. First is this, God does not withhold good gifts. He doesn't withhold them from his people. The words that are used here are of a cosmic nature. It's funny how sin is cosmic, yet God's goodness is also cosmic. They are words that refer to the lights of the sky. If you were to actually study this, it's actually talking about a lot of astronomy words, the lights in the sky. You can imagine James writing this and probably looking at the sky. He may have been looking at the sky as he was writing it. And you may have been thinking, man, it's always moving. Things are always on the move. Clouds disappear and reappear. The sun moves across the sky. The sun doesn't stand still. It rises and it sets and doesn't stop in between. Friends, we're seeing a contrast between the changing world and our changeless God. God is not fickle. 
in his giving of good gifts. He doesn't wake up one morning, like we do, and ask himself, how do I feel? Do I feel like being nice today? Do I feel like a cup of coffee today? Do I feel like some tea? First, he doesn't wake up because he never sleeps. And also, he doesn't give good gifts one day and then withhold them the next. He always gives good gifts. He gives always, and in his giving, it is always good. Luke 11, verse 19 through 13 says this, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks or asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, Jesus acknowledges this too, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why we are to ask God for wisdom. Because God will give it. He wants you to have wisdom. It's a good gift. Beloved, ask God for the things that He says are already good. And he will not withhold it from you. If God says it's good, he doesn't withhold it. I'd also like to illustrate it in this way. God always gives good gifts, even if they appear evil. Let's use the same illustration he's using. We wake up in the mornings and see the sunshine. We walk outside. I like to walk out and I'd like a cup of coffee. Feel the heat of the sun's rays on our skin, the coolness of the morning. But there are also days where we see less sunshine and more clouds, and we don't feel the warmth of the sunshine anymore. We only see the dense cloud and the rain that covers its bright rays. But isn't that a manifestation of God's goodness as well? Because Consistent rain without sunshine can lead us to despair. Even we, ask the, we might even ask the question, when will we see the sun again? But the sun, if there is no water, only scorches the grass. See, often we will tell God, Lord, only give me sunshine. But friends, whenever God sees that we are becoming dried out by its heat, is it not good of God to bring rain? On our lives. And yet we say, God, I don't want the clouds. I don't want the rain. But God says, you need it. It is good of God to bring the clouds. It is good of God to bring things into your life that will grow you. Not scorch you. Not drown you out. But grow you with the sunshine and the beauty that God can see raised up in your life. It is good for God to bring it. This is the way that God gives. He gives continually, and he gives what we need when we need it. And all of his giving is good. Always. Now, friends, I want to also notice, I want us to also to notice, 
verse 18. It's kind of tacked on at the end, and it almost appears arbitrary at times. But let's read it together. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, I want to call this the pinnacle of God's good gifts. This idea mentioned here about the word of truth is a theme that he picks up in verse 19. This is something that he continues to talk about. He talks about doing, being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And of course, we won't, be, we won't be going to verse 19 today, but this is a trajectory of his argument. But what we have here is the will of God being manifested to us. We're seeing what God wills. And notice the commonality between verse 18 and the previous verses, verse 14 through 15. Verse 14 through 15 shows us what comes out of man. What comes out of man is his desire. Verse 18 is saying what comes out of God's will. So we see what comes from him, his heart, his goodness, and now we say, what has he decreed? What is his will? And the scripture says, of his own will, he brought us forth. Now the Greek word, if you were to study the word, the words, brought us forth. They are words that literally mean to beget something or to give birth to something. Now notice, as I said, the similarity between this verse and the previous verses, verse 14 and 15. We, in our desire for sin, birth sin. I mean, you can even see it in there. It says conception, birth, maturity, sin. Boom. But God, God through his word gives us the new birth. Look at that contrast. From our hearts we birth sin, but from God's word he gives us life. Man, if that doesn't light a fire in your soul, I don't know what will. God gives the perfect cure for the condition. We were born in iniquity. From our desires comes sin and death, but God gave us life in Christ. God in Christ medicates our deceitfulness with truth. He blasts our evil desires with a brand new heart. God reforms our radical disobedience with the Holy Spirit who gives us conformity to God. And God, through Jesus Christ on the cross, defeated and disintegrated sin and death forever, and by resurrecting his Son from the dead, gave us life with him for eternity. For this this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in 
the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Oh, friends, we are the products of the first fruits that God brought forth in James. And the fact that we are here this morning, the fact that we are even gathered, means that God is unchangeable in his promise to give the crown of life to those who love him. Friends, let's praise God for the glory of his grace because all good gifts come from the fount. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us to give us life where death resides. You are so good to us to medicate our deceitfulness with your truth, to give us a brand new heart to combat our desires, to give us the spirit to bring conformity to our lives and to God. Lord, we ask that you would keep us steadfast, that you would give us shoulders to bear the testing that you bring upon our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the desire to do it with others, that you would help us to bear the load together, to bear one another's burdens together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your good gift of the new birth. In Jesus' name, amen.